welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Uh, Tracy, there's been some interesting uh, data out of China lately uh, regarding the recovery from the uh, coronavirus crisis. Uh, you're going to have to narrow that down <laughs> yeah, quite a bit. Sure. Are, you, are you talking about some of the data that sort of supports the notion that they're seeing something of a recovery, although it's mostly driven on the supply side rather than the demand side? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, sorry, I was being super cryptic. But yes, this idea that we have seen this sort of what some people might characterize as kind of a V-shaped recovery on the industrial side, uh, sort of an impressively fast and resilient restart of the factories and so forth, but not so much on the uh, demand side yet, at least from the data. And maybe you have a better sense of this from the Hong Kong perspective, but it still seems like consumption, shopping, going out to eat, still, uh, still kind of tame. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Although I have to say in Hong Kong, we are starting to see a little bit of a pickup, mostly because everyone is stuck in the city. They can't actually leave. Um, when they have to come back, they have to go into two weeks quarantine. So everyone is taking staycations and going out quite a bit uh, lately. But uh, with that exception made, yes, we are seeing a stronger supply driven recovery than we are on the demand side. And one thing that I find interesting about that is that it sort of speaks to the very nature of China's economic model. I guess one of the benefits right. of having a command economy is that when times are bad, you can kind of command everyone to go back to work and you can tell companies to maintain jobs and start making products again. But of course, you know, the downside of a command economy is that you might not necessarily get as strong a consumer as you want. Right. So the, the, the industrial side, the corporate side is very much an extension of policy, uh, much more so than consumption. And so this, this, this sort of dual speed recovery that we're seeing in China it may be a cue right now, but it speaks to something much broader. And I'm thinking also we had a recent uh, discussion with Matt Klein, just this sort of general idea that the Chinese economy has never really been as sort of consumption focused, household focused as it is uh, investment and production focused. Yeah, that's exactly right. And of course, the other big theme that's cropping up at the moment is what China is doing to support its financial system. So we know that the authorities are trying to walk this fine line between propping up the banks, but also, you know, avoiding moral hazard and trying not to accumulate even more debt. So that's something else that's going on at the moment. So all these things are like kind of like microcosms or cute versions of stories that, I mean, you and I have covered, um, talked about the world economy for years now. Literally, since I think the first day that I, you know, been covering the news, you just hear forever about the China bubble. And there's the most obvious bubble and there was all this debt, uh, supposedly, and all this bad debt. And it's sort of taken for granted that it must come to an end, that there must be a reckoning. And we know people have been shorting China forever and talking about how, how dysfunctional the system is. But, you know, it's been years and years since we've been talking about this. And the great sort of Chinese, I don't know, reset, bubble popping, mm -hmm. it never quite seems to happen. Yeah, China is forever a uh, debt crisis sort of on the brink. And yep, it, it never seems to happen. There's always these false starts. Like you'll see something that's like, oh, some apartment developer couldn't sell their units. And everyone's like, this is it. 
this is the moment we've all been waiting for. The Chinese real estate bubble is popping. And then six months later, it's like apartment prices hit new all-time highs and that goes away. Yeah. I mean, I would say in recent years, you've had some bigger ones. So you had Baosheng Bank, which actually um, failed, which was very unusual. And now what's really interesting is you're starting to get some losses on wealth management products that a lot of banks sold to retail investors. That's another thing that lots of people thought was going to tip over the financial system into some sort of crisis because people weren't going to buy the products anymore and they would pull funding for the banks, essentially. So, yeah, you you have a lot of things that could go wrong, but the consequences never seem as dire as people originally predicted. Exactly right. So anyway, I think that, you know, raises an interesting question of, well, why is this? Mm. Why does this, uh, why does the the doomsday bubble crash collapse scenario that so many people just assume is inevitable? Why has it not happened? Is it going to happen? Uh, we're going to be talking about that today with our own colleague, a special episode with one of our uh, Bloomberg uh, colleagues. They were going to be speaking to Tom Orlick. He is the chief economist here at Bloomberg, and he has a new book out on exactly this topic called China, the bubble that never popped. So, uh, Tom, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Joe. And I especially enjoyed your um, manly attempts to uh, frame the subject without accidentally using the title of my book before you introduced it. Very impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of guided it right there without quite using it. But it really has been a thing. And even before I was aware that you had this book in the works, that you're coming out, congratulations, by the way, this has been like a sort of like weird head scratcher because for as long as I've been following this stuff, it just seemed inevitable that China must be the most obvious bubble ever and that it was only a matter of time before it was crashing down. The only debate seemed to be when and not if it was going to happen. Yeah, that's completely right. So um, so I lived in China from 2007 to 2018, mainly focused on improving my table tennis game, but I did a little bit of economics <laughs> as well. And um, that was the persistent narrative, right, from the great financial crisis and that famous 4 trillion yuan stimulus, which Premier Wen Jiaobao launched all the way through now, there's been this massive rise in debt. And the question everybody has had has been, well, how long can this continue? And what's it going to look like when it melts down? So give us a summary of the weaknesses in China's economy or the financial system that people have seen for this long. What is it that they are seeing? What is it that they're concerned about? So I break it down in three ways, Tracy. Uh, So the first is the size of the debt bubble. Um, So if you go back to 2008, China's debt to GDP, looking at the whole economy, was around 140%. If you fast forward to 2016, 2017, it's gone all the way up to 250%, 260%. So that's an astronomical increase in debt in a really short period of time. Uh, The International Monetary Fund scanned the world Uh, They went back in history to, I think, World War II. They couldn't find another country which had taken on so much debt so quickly. Um, But they did find a bunch of countries that had taken on on less debt and still had a financial crisis. So that's the first thing, just a huge amount of debt taken on very quickly. Uh, And then the second thing, if we look at the borrower side of the Chinese economy, who's borrowing the money? Well, it's state-owned enterprises investing in 
excess capacity, building steel mills when no one wants any more steel, cement kilns when no one wants any more cement. It's real estate developers building those ghost towns in the desert uh, or those empty apartment blocks. And it's local governments building the roads to nowhere. So on the borrower side, we've got a bunch of people making investments in things which have got low returns. So how are they going to pay the money back? Uh, And then on the lender side, you've got state-owned banks, state-owned banks operating more on policy directives than commercial incentives. They're probably making some bad lending decisions. And you have the explosive growth of a shadow banking sector. Shadow banks don't have the capital to absorb losses, um, are lending to really low quality borrowers. So the risks there have got to be higher. So this, I have a million questions uh, already just based on that, but I'll start with one. And, you know, one of the things that's really been a popular conversation in the last couple of years and partly popularized by the rise of, say, modern monetary theory is that there is a, a, a distinct difference between private sector debt and public sector debt and that public sector debt just doesn't have shouldn't be thought of with the same kind of credit risk. And I'm curious whether to some extent we can start getting our heads around the Chinese debt bubble by the fact that, you know, you mentioned state-owned enterprise, state banks, local governments, which presumably are implicitly at some level backed by the federal government, the sort of difficulty that outside analysts have in distinguishing what's truly private sector credit versus public sector credit, and how much does that play to the sort of misconceptions about the debt sustainability? Yeah, so that's a really important point, Joe. And one thing which really distinguishes China from the rest of the world, um, or at least the liberal capitalist rest of the world, the US, Europe, and so on, is state participation in the economy. And in many sense, in, in many instances, just state ownership of the key players. So let's say we have a, a bad loan in the US system. Well, right. how is that going to be resolved? Well, maybe there's some initial negotiations between the borrower and the bank, and then maybe there's some legal recourse uh, for the bank if the borrower uh, can't repay and they try and reclaim their collateral. How does that look in the Chinese context? Well, probably the local government owns the bank and they own the corporate, and they have some tax revenue or other sources of income they can put into play. And so that entire conversation, that entire negotiation is taking place within the state family. And as long as China continues to grow, and remember China continues to clock, not in this COVID-19 year, of course, but in general, China continues to grow around five, 6%, then the government just has a lot of resources that they can continue to shuffle around the system. And that allows them to resolve a lot of problems behind closed doors without a blow up taking place. Just on that note of sort of shuffling things around the system and also having this closed circuit of uh, state owned enterprises and, and banks that all sort of have relationships with each other. How much does the fact that we're essentially talking about a closed economy factor into China's resilience here? Because, of course, you know, there has been some degree of opening up, but you still have hefty capital control. So how much does that actually insulate China from problems? Yeah, that's a that's a really important point, Tracy. You often hear people saying that that China learned the lesson of the Asian financial crisis, right? They learned the lesson of the Asian financial crisis, and that's why they've been stable. 
what was the lesson of the Asian financial crisis that they learned? Essentially, it was don't let Wall Street in, don't let foreign capital in. In China, they actually uh, have a have a phrase for sort of foreign speculative investors. They call them. Um, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it's like da jin rong eru, which means big financial crocodiles. So the big financial crocodiles came and they came and gobbled up Seoul. They gobbled up Korea in 1997. They destroyed much of the Asian growth story, and China saw that and said, "You know what? We're going to finance our own development." We don't need these foreign funds coming in, which are great when they're coming in and everyone's really happy. But when they leave, the system crashes down. And so because China's growth story has really been domestically financed, that gives China an important basis for stability that you just don't see in other emerging markets. This is like a really key point, just this idea of local denomination of debt, basically. I mean, as long as debt is in a... um, is in a currency that you can print that makes it more sustainable because of Chinese incredible growth. It hasn't needed to use foreign money to uh, finance itself. Joe, I knew you'd find a way to work modern monetary theory into this conversation. I no, knew I just, it. You know, it just, was inevitable. Just, just trying, just trying to see if, like, you know, that we're all speaking the same. We're all speaking the same language. Yeah, and actually, I'm I, I'm not as familiar with the with the precepts of MMT as as, as Joe or, um, as Joe is. But from what I from what little I do understand understand about it, I think China has actually been pursuing a kind of quasi MMT uh, type policy for the last twenty years, um, without calling it MMT. So there's there's kind of, you know, I'm thinking back to like the, the over the last decade, and I feel like the China debt bubble story is actually sort of two pronged. And you already uh, alluded to both of them. One was on the pure financing side, but the other one was just about this sort of misallocation of capital. And it doesn't matter really what currency uh, investments are made in. If they're bad investments, they're bad investments. And I remember like all those videos that used to be on YouTube that um, I forget the hedge fund manager used to go to those cities out in the middle of nowhere and nobody was in the in the cities. Did those ever get filled up? Like what happened to those ghost cities we were talking about like in 2011? Did people eventually move into those apartments? Oh, Hugh Hendry, that was the that was the fund manager that went and made all those YouTube videos showing all these like empty cities. I remember the name. I remember the name. It's a shame there were no drones in those days. He could have saved a lot himself yes. a lot of time. <laughs> So that's a really interesting story, and it, and it speaks to another one of the themes in my book, which is uh, how China's policymakers have policy instruments available to them, which enable them to move the dial on the macroeconomy in ways which other other countries just wouldn't be able to do. So uh, let me tell you a story about a, a trip I made to uh, Guiyang, uh, the capital of Guizhou province, back in 2017. Uh, and Guiyang had a serious ghost town problem. They built a bunch of shiny new tower blocks, uh, but no one wanted to live in them. Um, so what did the local government do? They got out the bulldozers and they went and knocked over everyone's house. And then they said, OK, sorry, we knocked over your house. Uh, and by the way, we're going to have the land your house was on. Uh, but don't worry, here's some money. Go and move into the shiny new apartment block. Now, that's one way to do it. 
the real estate developers who built the shiny new apartment blocks were happy because someone had come and bought them. The local government now had some land. The real estate developers who were now flush with cash bought the land off the local government. So the financial circle was complete and the real estate, the empty real estate had been used up. And that wasn't just a Guiyang story. That was a national story. That happened to millions of people uh, every year for the last decade in China. There was a national program that the government sort of euphemistically called it slum clearance. Millions of people every year for the best part of a decade getting their old home knocked over and getting some money to move into a new home. And when you can do that kind of thing, um, which China can, and I don't think any other country in the world can, then problems like massive real estate overcapacity suddenly become a little bit easier to deal with. Can we talk about the downsides of having this sort of closed circular command economy system? Because, you know, you're, we're talking about the misallocation of capital. And one thing that you do tend to see in the Chinese market a lot is there is a lot of excess cash and it sort of just rolls into one thing after another. So, you know, it'll go into property and then it will go into stocks and then it will go into something else. And people do lose money on those investments. And every once in a while, you do hear stories of outrage at someone who's you know, from someone who's lost their entire savings on, you know, a peer to peer loan scheme or something like that. What are the downsides of having that kind of circularity in a closed system? So I think the first thing to say is that there are some very serious social downsides, right? Just think about that slum clearance example. Did those millions of people want to have their homes bulldozed so that the government could solve the problem of real estate overcapacity? I think there's a reason democratic countries wouldn't be able to do that, basically because people don't like it. So there's some very serious social downsides to it. There's also economic downsides as well. If you have very large scale misallocation of capital, then you have very low return on assets, very low productivity growth. Uh, and ultimately, when China has used up all the space it has to catch up with the US, to catch up with Germany, to catch up with Japan in terms of its use of modern technology, its use of modern management techniques, then that's going to come back to, to bite really hard. Uh, and China's growth is going to be very weak. And we are going to see a day of reckoning in the economy and in the financial system. That day just is much further away uh, than most people realize. I remember there's that one street in Beijing where a lot of the really big state-owned enterprises have their sort of headquarter offices. And uh, a friend of mine used to refer to it as the street where capital goes to die. <laughs> we, need, uh, we need photos of that, the street where capital goes <laughs> to die. But uh, Tom, I want to press you on that last point because you referred to a day of reckoning. Will it be a day? I mean, and I mean that kind of literally in the sense that when we think about, say, the U.S. housing bubble having collapsed, okay, it took place over a period of time, but, you know, there's like a few days that really stand out, the Lehman Brothers collapsed and so forth. In the China context, is there going to be a day when it collapses or will it just be that at some point you expect we'll look back and say, years and years of misallocation and other uh, bad decisions led to a degradation of growth and productivity that clearly set it back. 
is it going to be a crash or just sort of like a bad period? Yeah, I think it's a, it's kind of the, is it Lehman or is it Tokyo, right? Yeah, Lehman right, being yeah, the kind right. of the, the moment where everything went wrong and, and Tokyo being the kind of the example of an economy which just kind of lost its moxie. Is it moxie or is it mojo? Both, maybe both over an extended period of time. I think both. Um, and uh, I, I think the point I come back to is that what China's government needs in order to successfully backstop the system is continued growth in its resources, right? If the government has continued growth in profits from state firms, continued growth in profits from state banks, continued growth in tax revenue, continued land sales revenue, then it's got money that it can carry on shuffling around the system to make everybody whole, right? To paper over over, over the cracks. And to have those things, what it needs is growth. For me, the point when the bubble pops, whether it is the kind of the beginning of a long stagnation or a kind of a crisis point, is the moment when the growth stops. So the question is, when's that going to be? And one powerful way of thinking about that is, well, where is China relative to the technology frontier? Where is China relative to the level of productivity that we see in the United States and Japan and elsewhere? And the answer is actually still a really long way. GDP per capita in China is a third of the level that it is in the United States. Japan fell over in 1989. Japan's GDP per capita in 1989 was already at US levels. Based on that way of thinking about things, China still has quite a long way to run. So I'd be curious to get your take on what you think China sees as its role in the global financial system. Like, what is China actually trying to achieve with some of its capital markets uh, opening up? You mentioned this idea that it wanted to keep a lot of the Western speculators out earlier. Um, And is there a moment at which China's global financial ambitions uh, maybe become constricted by that closed economy that we've been describing? There's a real cost to autarky, Tracy. Some of those points that you were mentioning, so much money sloshing around in the system, chasing returns on P2P schemes today and equity tomorrow and real estate um, on Thursday. And so China's policymakers recognize that there are some benefits in terms of efficiency to having a more open system, to allowing money to go on, to come in and out of the country. At the same time, there's still a real fear about what might happen if they open up too quickly. I spoke to one senior executive in a Chinese firm who said, opening up with all of the weaknesses we have in our banking system would be like jiao se, it would be like seeking death. So they want the efficiency gains, but they want to do it gradually so they can try and minimize the costs. ask you a question that's sort of um, not necessarily the focus of your book, which had obviously been in the works for a while, but it's sort of of acute importance. You mentioned post the last crisis, the $4 trillion stimulus got a lot of attention. There was this big sort of commodities boom associated with it, sort of between 2009-2011. It was a huge uh, amount of enthusiasm towards emerging markets, which then faded over the subsequent decade, but at least initially coming out of the crisis, all kinds of sort of 
after effects from that sort of massive move on the demand side. We haven't seen that this time around. It feels like the measures have been more limited. In fact, we just started this conversation talking about sort of dual speed nature of the recovery. Could you see China doing something like that again, particularly if global demand for their goods uh, remains soft uh, just due to the sort of slow reopening of the West and elsewhere? I think there's there's two big differences between uh, 2008 when they did that massive shock and or stimulus and today. So the first is they just don't have as much policy space as they did. There is a cost to running a massive credit stimulus for a long period of time. And the cost is you can't do it again. Uh, and then the second thing is actually that stimulus didn't work out so great for them. It was a stimulus which was very popular with the rest of the world, but that's because it created massive positive spillovers for the rest of the world. The benefits, yeah, there were benefits for China, but because a lot of the money went to importing iron ore, for example, a lot of the benefits spilled over to Australia. Uh, and Brazil in the form of more volumes and higher prices for their commodity sales. Uh, so China this time, they're running a pretty big stimulus. Uh, we think the fiscal deficit's gonna go up to 11% of GDP this year. That's not nothing, but it's certainly smaller than it was in 2008. And it's kind of, it's meaner, right? It's more smartly focused. So the benefits are much more gonna stay inside China we're not going to see those, those big positive spillovers to the rest of the world. Uh, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you a, a little bit about the, the ongoing trade tensions with the U.S. and what those mean for the Chinese economy. But how much damage do they actually inflict on China? Because there's an argument, at least domestically uh, in China, that in some ways, by you know closing off the country from the rest of the global market, you're sort of encouraging it to double down on its domestic focus and maybe even speed up the development of its own domestic market even faster. I think there's there's a couple of things. So trade war is definitely a trade war is definitely not good for China. And a trade war at the same time as they are managing this painful deleveraging process, trying to manage down some of that debt they took on after the great financial crisis. And at the same time as they have the COVID-19 crisis is definitely painful. So they, they certainly don't want tariffs to go back up. Uh, I'm sure they'd like them to come down. But then the second question is, is a trade war going to fundamentally derail China's development process? And I think the answer to that is no. Uh, and it's for, for the reasons that you suggested, Tracy. So firstly, China's domestic innovation engine. I mean, China does not have a Stanford or a Harvard but China's domestic innovation engine is pretty powerful. No one spend, no one apart from America spends more on R&D than China. If you look at the innovation rankings, China is punching way above its weight relative to its uh, level of development. It's important to remember that it's actually really hard for other, country, other countries to decouple from China, right? The US has really moved aggressively in that direction, but they can't move completely in that direction because the Apples and the Qualcomms of the world are deeply invested in the China relationship. And that is also true of the big multinationals in Europe and the big multinationals in Japan. So trade war is definitely bad. Trump, in a sense, is kind of like the anti-Nixon. Nixon opens China up. Trump is, seems to be doing his best to, to close it down. Um, I don't think he's going to succeed. But ultimately, I don't think this is going to be anything more than a, a little bump on China's development trajectory. What about um, 
and no one seems to talk about this as much anymore or only when you hear about it, it seems to be about um failures or disappointments but the endeavors of the belt and road initiative or just creating all of these uh, you know financing investments in other countries which might theoretically one day be sources of demand for china and further uh, opportunities for growth what's is that stalled out is that not going as planned what's happening with that so xi jinping came into power and he basically had a different conception of china's role in the world right so deng xiaoping famously said we should bide our time and hide our strength right we should just stay quiet benefit from favorable global conditions and develop and xi jinping came in and said you know what we've arrived we won all the medals at the olympics we've got the biggest foreign exchange reserves with the biggest exporter in the world we're here and we we're not we're not we're not going to hide it anymore so you had a bunch of initiatives from xi jinping you had the belt and road scheme which was basically announcing their arrival as a kind of a geopolitical power you had china 2025 where they announced their ambition to kind of to own the future of technology. Both of those things were, were frankly PR disasters for China, right? The entire rest of the world said, what? You're going to be taking over Africa and owning AI and robots? That's not acceptable. So it's not a coincidence that the announcement of the Belt and Road Scheme and the announcement of China 2025 came immediately before the shift in the global perception of China towards a basically a more sort of cautious, hmm. hostile view uh, of what China's rise meant. And it's also not a coincidence that China has stopped talking about both of these things, right? China doesn't really talk about China 2025 anymore. They don't really talk so much about the Belt and Road anymore. Uh, and that's not, that's not because they're not doing them still. It's because they've realized that it doesn't actually strategically make sense to make these bold claims. Right. I have like a semi-interesting analogy about table tennis and the Chinese economy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us that you, you hit a great thread on Twitter about this, and I want our listeners to hear it. So before we go, tell us how table tennis explains the resilience of the Chinese economy. Um, so, um, so I spent a lot of time uh, in China playing table tennis. I actually moved to China partly because I wanted to be a China economist, but mainly because I wanted to be a better table tennis player. Wait, for real? I was young and foolish. So I played in I played in sweaty basement clubs. I played in the headquarters of some of China's biggest state-owned banks. Uh, I played with the Shanghai University ping pong team, who are really good at table tennis. Oh, um, there are YouTube videos, Joe. Uh, there are YouTube videos. Tom really? Orlick table tennis match in Shanghai. Yeah, I just looked these up. Oh, Tom, that was a mistake telling us. Laura, can we get some sound in here? Just some like ping. That's, I love that sound of the ping pong ball going back and forth. So China's table tennis has some really serious problems. The the men's team went on strike a few years ago uh, because they weren't happy because there was some backroom political deal which got rid of the coach they really liked. If you speak to professional players in China, they all have stories about bribes and corruption and payments they needed, their parents needed to make to get them into the best training programs. The best players in China, um, they had to start training when they were eight or nine, uh, drop out of school to have any chance of making it. So you've got, you've got corruption, you've got nepotism, you've got a kind of mechanical, almost inhuman approach to training. And yet 
China's table tennis team are indisputably the best in the world. Go and check the International Table Tennis Federation rankings, look at the top 10 for men, the top 10 for women. There's a lot of Chinese people on that list. So why is that? Well, there's a few reasons. The first is there's 1.3 billion people in China and they all try table tennis. So there's a massive talent pool to pick from and huge economies of scale. The second reason is they have a really well-planned approach to ensuring that they're gonna be the best. If a foreign player develops a good serve or a good shot and wins a few games against the Chinese team, they'll get a video camera, they'll record the foreign player, they'll take the video home, they'll break it down, they'll analyze it, they'll make sure they've mastered that technique. So the technique might work once against the Chinese team, but it's not gonna work twice. And writ large, those benefits that the Chinese table tennis system has are also the benefits the Chinese economy has. China is the most populous country in the world, which means they have absolutely enormous economies of scale. China's trade with the rest of the world means that they can learn foreign technologies and foreign techniques. And when you put together the foreign technologies and the foreign techniques with China's massive scale, what you end up with in table tennis and in the economy is the potential for a, for a well-beating system. I love it. I'm so glad we uh, I'm so glad we got this in, but it's perfect. And, uh, you know, just the idea you can you can mismanage a lot. But when you have that much raw resources, you can still be the best. That's exactly right. Buy my book, China, the bubble that never popped. <laughs> Buy the book, people. Thank you so much, Tom. Now, I want to do one uh, on Russian chess during the Soviet era. I wonder how many analogies there are between Chinese ping pong and the dominance of uh, Russian chess, but we can, uh, we can talk about that another time. Thanks again, Tom. Congratulations. Thanks so much. So, Joe, I really enjoyed that conversation, not least because it has led me down the internet wormhole of uh, watching Tom Orlick table tennis videos uh, from years ago. That's fun. Uh, but also because it is interesting to think of China as sort of one of the first examples of a real uh, quasi MMT economy with all the benefits and also the downsides that that might entail. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, back to our, you know, I and I think about this episode a lot. Remember uh, Fadal Kaboob? I think that was last year or maybe mm. it was two years ago and talking about sort of MMT in the develop, developing market context. And of course, most countries don't really have the sort of industrial or technical or growth capacity the way China has had. But that is sort of just like this very different model of not relying on external financing. Uh, to grow and there are costs and benefits, but one uh, benefit is you don't have those sort of financial crises the same way where suddenly you have a huge obligation in a foreign currency. Yeah. And I mean, you, you have to say there there are some advantages to having a command economy in times of crisis and specifically, I guess, in times of uh, national pandemics, as we've seen, you know, the U.S., might struggle or at least take some time to institute job safety measures. Whereas in China, like I think they're much, much more used to telling people and companies what to do. And so you see that sort of um, yeah. economic machinery uh, start much faster. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the key thing that I took away from that is not that there aren't massive risks to the Chinese mm. growth model. And there clearly are, and there are all kinds of problems. And building cities, if no one wants to live in them, is going to be an issue. Or building steel plants that uh, for steel that goes unused is going to be an issue. I think what, what the key thing is just sort of being clear about identifying what the risks are. And if you're looking for the sort of Lehman moment or something like that, it's probably not going to be that, but more along the lines of like an ongoing degradation in productivity if they if they if you build an economy of stuff that uh, nobody wants. So I think what maybe perhaps analysts got wrong is not about the sustainability or unsustainability per se, but about what the aftermath looks like if things go bad. And I think that's where uh, Tom's uh, perspective is really helpful. Yeah. Cities full of streets where capital goes to die. And now I'm going to spend the rest of the day watching uh, ping pong videos. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me at The Stalwart. Be sure to uh, follow our guest on Twitter, Tom Orlick. He's at Tom Orlick. And check out his new book, China, The Bubble That Never Popped. And be sure to follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the Twitter handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.